Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Catastrophic floods in Pakistan. The summer heat wave that's come months earlier than usual has been melting glaciers in the Himalayas. This is causing flooding that's collapsing bridges in Pakistan. Ice sheets melting. From July 15th through 17th alone, a melt surge in northern Greenland caused ice sheet runoff of about 6 billion tons of water per day. An incredibly hot summer. A summer of record-breaking heat is drying up rivers across Europe. Around half the continent is facing an unprecedented drought. With yet more intense heat in the U.S. this week, forest fires in many western states can be seen from space. The effects of climate change seem to be everywhere. This heat wave and uh, brush fires, for that matter, have led to power rationing. Tropical storm Fiona has battered eastern Canada. Hundreds of thousands of people across five provinces have been left without power. Scientists tell us human actions and human indifference are changing our planet. Global average temperature rise could reach or exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius in the next 20 years. Experts warn these changes in the climate will affect billions of us, will cause huge migrations, could lead to war, cause mass extinctions, and even lead to economic and social collapses. Climate change ministers said the floods have destroyed 45% of Pakistan's croplands. Power rationing across multiple provinces has resulted in thousands of factory closures. Inflation is rising. And the war in Ukraine is causing food and energy prices to skyrocket. But increasing fossil fuel production will only make matters worse. Then why do most people not seem particularly bothered by it? We're the number one energy producer in the world. It's tremendous wealth. And I'm not going to lose that wealth. I'm not going to lose it on, on windmills. I'm not going to lose it. In this episode of The Bell Tale, we ask Belfast Telegraph columnist and climate activist Rosalind Skillen about indifference to environmental issues and what she thinks of Liz Truss's new not-so-green cabinet. I think the reality is, Rosalind, that many people, or even most people, don't seem overly concerned about the environment or the climate. But of course, everyone breathes the same air. Do you think that maybe that climate activism is centred around certain demographics and not maybe the wider population that it should be? Yeah, I think it's really interesting. And the media does play quite a big role in this, because I think a lot of the time when you think of climate activism, you think of like the school strikers and Greta Thunberg and all holding their posters outside Parliament, um, where in some ways, like a lot of people are 
like fulfilling or delivering climate activism without even realizing it like a lot of the work that I do in the environmental NGO I work for is all to do with like community gardens and food growing and allotments and a lot of that is related to climate action but maybe they're not aware that they're even doing it if that makes sense like they're not even aware of the environmental impact of the actions that they're taking and the voluntary work that they're doing each week so I think it's interesting how it's framed almost um but I think yeah no we definitely need to see a lot more like intergenerational collaboration in that respect but certainly for you you do think climate change is the biggest question of our age is the biggest issue of our age Yeah, I would say so. I think that climate change is kind of the lens through which you can look at other social issues. It connects to gender equality, racial justice, poverty. Um, And I think there's so much polling that suggests that climate change is now a ballot box issue for people. And it's ranked as one of the top issues facing the world at the minute. I mean, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, has called it an existential threat to humanity. Um, And it's really clear that we have 10 years to tackle this crisis. We're kind of living in the decisive decade, as people have called. And I think it requires immense collaboration. And that's what makes it one of the biggest challenges that we face. It's high time to put fossil fuel producers, investors and enablers on notice. Polluters must pay. And today I'm calling on all developed economies to tax the windfall profits of fossil fuel companies. Those funds should be redirected in two ways. To countries suffering loss and damage caused by the climate crisis and to people struggling with rising food and energy prices. And you say that now, but we we keep putting people in power, in political power, who simply don't agree it's a major problem. For example, the new Environment Secretary, Ranil Jarawardena, has consistently voted against policies to tackle the climate change. The new Energy Secretary, Jacob Rees-Mogg, has said climate alarmism is responsible for high energy prices and it's unrealistic for scientists to to project future changes in the climate. Also, uh, Liz Truss's new uh, number 10 uh, probably won't be thinking too much about the climate uh, crisis because her chief economic advisor, Matthew Sinclair, argues against taxation to pay for environmental policies. And he's even written a book saying, let them eat carbon, which challenges whether policies to address climate change are worth the cost to living standards and papers, uh, including the case against further green taxes. He seems to say that, yes, Life will be intolerable in the, around the equator, but they'll just move to Greenland. How how can you stop this happening politically? Yeah, I think for me, climate change is definitely one of the areas of a trust premiership that causes me the most concern. I mean, I find it really bizarre that she's appointed Jacob Rees-Mogg, someone with a history of climate denial in the department responsible for climate and Quasi Kwarteng as Chancellor and he's one of the biggest supporters of drilling in for North Sea gas um, and I think for me anyway one of the biggest frustrations is that people seem to want strong environmental policy and they actually make the most environmental and economic sense like if we were to take oil and gas as an example one of the first policies that Liz Truss wants to implement is more oil drilling in the North Sea and she's expected to issue 130 new oil and gas licenses. What we need to do is increase our energy supplies long term. And that is why we will open up more supply in the North Sea, which the Honourable Gentleman has opposed. That is why we will build more 
more nuclear power stations, which the Labour Party didn't do when they were in office. And we know that gas goes to the international market anyway. It takes an average of 30 years for exploration licence to even lead to oil and gas production. So her decision to issue new licences wouldn't even have an immediate effect on energy prices on the market. It wouldn't even help people now who are struggling to pay their bills. And all it would do is lock us into this high carbon future. So I think clearly gas isn't what the public want and people are, are, there's a lot of polling to show renewable energy is the way that we should go. Two thirds of people think that the UK should use new wind and solar farms to reduce energy bills. Um, And we know that solar power is hugely cheaper than either fossil fuels or nuclear power. It's nine times cheaper. Um, But instead, Liz Truss wants to change planning laws to hinder the development of solar power. Um, And she's very ideologically opposed to solar and wind, but yet wants fracking, which is, again, something I find a bit confusing because there's this sort of like obsession with the fact that solar panels are really unsightly. But um, I think it's almost like this emphasis on fracking. Why would people want to live close to a site where fracking happens and not a wind farm? It doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Um, And the fact that she also wants to lift that ban on fracking, which came in in 2019, is also scary because the government polling suggests that only 17 people actually support fracking and scaling up fracking would also take years to have any effect. Um, and even Boris Johnson, the outgoing prime minister, said that it wasn't going to be the solution that some people would suggest. So I think um, clearly <laughs> the, the the direction of the new government is quite scary. Um, and I know that it's not indicative of like the public opinion as a whole. Well, is it not? I mean, they do have a very strong majority in the House of Parliament. They certainly wouldn't be, they certainly wouldn't be acting in a way that they don't think is a, a, a vote winner. So, I mean, the question is, who are the people? Um, but the reality is, in the UK, uh, well, in Britain, uh, that there's massive support for the Conservative Party. There's massive support for, uh, a, 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 as we say. For viewing climate change as climate alarmism and for thinking that mankind will simply have to adapt. And there's massive support for assuming that the economy is more important than the environment. So, I mean, is it not the challenge for uh, for a climate activist like yourself to, I mean, what do you say to that voter who goes and votes for the Tory party and all of these policies we've just outlined? Well, what I would say is that clearly the economic and environmental agendas are not incompatible. Like there's a strong case for the economic benefit of investing in renewables, of retrofitting people's homes. And I think that's where the conversation needs to go if you're trying to convince members of the Tory party. But also there's like a really strong um There's a lot of like people in the Tory party, like Alok Sharma, the COP26 president. You've got Chris Skidmore and you've also got Zach Goldsmith in the House of Lords, all of whom actually campaign um, with a lot of like clarity and force on the um, environment and nature agendas. um, Looking at this whole idea that's emerging of like the idea of conservatism to conserve and Boris Johnson as well kind of wanted to brand himself as the Green Prime Minister and took quite a leading role in COP26. So I think it would be unfair to say that Um, anti-green policy is like representative of the Tory party as a whole Um, and there are some members of the Conservative Party who actually have said like Alok Sharma for example the COP26 president was said he was going to resign if the new Prime Minister didn't take the net zero strategy seriously Um, and he's talked again and again about the economic sense in net zero It's interesting 
You know, we speak about the environment crisis and living standards dropping. I, I was speaking to someone recently and they kept tr- bringing the, the, this problem back to Africa. Yeah, we need to, uh, we need to make sure we need to stop emissions in Africa and Africa. And I kept bringing it back to saying, well, they're not responsible for this at all. I mean, not even 1% of this problem. And in the end, this person said to me, yeah, you know what it is? I'm not prepared to give up my living standards. So other people will have to adapt. And this, I, I was really shocked at this person's absolute honesty there to say, you know, no, I have these living standards in the West. I have these rights. I can go places on aircraft, et cetera. So I just wanted to ask, is it possible, do you think, to solve an, the environmental crisis in terms of species, the extinction crisis, um, the global uh, global warming, etc., without living standards dropping, or do we have to accept that our way of life is destroying the planet, and we can't continue on like that? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I do think that we need to move away from this kind of green austerity narrative about what we have to give up and what we have to sacrifice. We do need to change our really excessive consumption habits, that's for sure. But we actually also need to focus on what we have to gain, clean air, green jobs, a better standard of life. And I think to take a really recent example, right, the example of transport in Germany and Spain. So Germany launched a three month long scheme back in June, offering people unlimited travel across the country for only nine euros a month. A really strong environmental policy that saved 1.8 billion tonnes of CO2 from being emitted. But what this also did was it helped people with their energy bills, it helped them with their daily commute, and people said that they actually went out a lot more. Like there was a really strong social incentive because maybe they wouldn't have wanted to buy a ticket to go see their friends in the evening but because it essentially felt like free transport their social life actually increased helped the local economy they were tipping people more in restaurants um so i think that's a really clear case of like the social coupled with the environmental coupled with the economic benefit of these kind of policies spain as well has literally just announced free rail travel from september until the end of 2022 for short to medium long distance journeys and again that's a really excellent example um, of the way like taking the environment seriously also represents a really good opportunity to tackle the cost of living crisis that we're seeing at the minute. So I just think that like strong environmental policies like retrofitting people's homes, we're seeing that it actually is a really positive thing for people's well-being as well. I mean, that's interesting. You seem, and I don't want to be misinterpreting what you're saying, you seem to be, you know, saying we can we can continue to have standards of living and perhaps live a liberal way of life and still tackle climate change. Other people have said, like the former um, leader of the Green Party here, uh, Claire Bailey, I mean, she opposes uh, the capitalist system, which she um, feels you know, is responsible for environmental crisis now. I mean, the argument against that, I suppose, there were places where the capitalist system is at least fundamentally different, for example, in the Soviet Union or the former Soviet Union and in the People's Republic of China, the environmental record of those two super states was and is absolutely abysmal. Um, so perhaps it's unfair to ask, I mean, if we're not doing enough to tackle this, what more can be done and what uh, what socioeconomic system do we need to adopt? Yeah, um, 
It's a really good question. I think what can be done, like look at any sector in society and anything can be done really um, at a system level, like strong, robust environmental policy, meaning like moving away from fossil fuels, moving away from an economy really heavily dependent on oil and gas, ramping up investment in renewables, things like solar, wind, tidal. We also need multilateral collaboration. We need to be forging alliances with different countries across the world, um, looking at things like transport, which is a really big emitting sector, reducing our car use, investing in public transport, um, and also looking at agriculture, really relevant to Ireland and the UK. We've got an economy really heavily dependent on agriculture. So things like rewilding schemes, incentivizing farmers to protect the land um, rather than extract from it. And as well, I think that question of climate justice is really important and we shouldn't leave that behind. So supporting the Global South loss and damage reparations, that's going to be a really key theme at COP27 this year, which is an African COP. And it's kind of been called the Adaptation COP. Um, at COP15 in Copenhagen, rich nations promised 100 billion US dollars a year to the Global South. Um, and at COP26, there was another commitment to double those efforts by 2025 to accelerate adaptation because we just haven't seen that money being moved. So I think that question of climate justice is inseparable from what more can be done. But at the minute, it really does feel like there's a lot of um, policies, targets, strategies, um, and this sense that maybe releasing a new policy, the job has already been done. We kind of have seen that with the Climate Change Act, which we got this year, um, but we really need to move to the delivery and the implementation stage. Um, and I think that's the next the next stage, really, moving away from um, dialogue to delivery. And I just wonder how that works out. I mean, uh, in terms of in terms of our economic and our way of life in the global north, do we need to return to a more simpler way of life, for example, accepting that strawberries and tomatoes aren't available all of the year round. That's quite an artificial thing. I mean, because we're talking there invest in the global south, which will industrialise the global south, and surely that will lead to more emissions from the global south. Now, I'm not saying to Uganda that they can't industrialise, but how can they industrialise without producing more fossil fuels? And especially if we are, again, focusing on the global south, are we not ignoring the, the, the realities in the global north where each individual has a car not every family we 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 heat our houses to extreme and wear you know t-shirts we eat whatever we want despite the the, the cost we have a a level of selfishness and a, and a way of life which which has never been seen in the world before is that sustainable or do we have to rein ourselves in here yeah, I don't think that is sustainable. And I think we're seeing that it's kind of catching up on us. And I think the rates of consumption in the global north are really excessive. And there is sort of being the sense of being confronted with the reality of our consumer behaviours and our patterns. And these do need to change because they're not compatible with a net zero future. Um, but I think that doesn't necessarily mean giving up, if this makes sense. So I think there's a lot of benefits to be gained from reducing um our reliance on plastic and from eating more seasonally, more locally, like the impact that will have on our physical health and well-being. So I think it's maybe about changing the narrative, but this recognition that, yeah, totally, we do need to dramatically change our consumer behaviours. Um, yeah, that is kind of a conflict for people. And I know it's difficult to hear as well, um, but I think it's not a negative thing inherently. Um, and as you said, a lot of the time, like we have adjusted to these patterns of behaviour that aren't really normal and that's not what our grandparents did and we're kind of moving back into the the patterns and the behaviours of our grandparents which is kind of really interesting um, and we're seeing that across all the sectors. 
finally, I suppose, if a total skeptic is listening to this podcast, who even who may not believe in climate change, and even if they do, they think, well, there's nothing we can do about it. And even if they do think there's something we can do about it, they think, no, it's better just to try and adapt to that. How would you convince an absolute skeptic? I always try and speak to people um, in the value systems that they hold. So if I'm speaking to a business, for example, maybe you're talking about the economic benefit of these environmental policies. If you're speaking to a faith community, you're talking about creation care, those values of stewardship, of justice, um, which they hold really dear. And maybe if you're speaking to someone as simple, someone who loves running and they love swimming, you know, outdoor swimming in um, Ireland is really, really popular. Um, and you're talking about how you want to swim in clean oceans, you want to run in really beautiful countryside where you're breathing clean air. So I just think it's really important to meet people where they're at, understand what's important to them, and then how an aspect of their life will be affected by the climate crisis, because inevitably it will be. And I don't think anyone will remain untouched from this. Um, And I think we're seeing that more and more, like this summer with the UK heatwaves, for example. I know that there was a lot of um, people who were maybe subject to climate apathy before and they didn't really care so much about the climate crisis but now that it's hit a bit more the UK and Europe they're realising wow this is something that is really going to impact me and it's going to impact my life so I think it's about understanding what's important to people and then how the climate crisis will affect that Rosalind thank you very much this episode of The Bell Tale was produced by myself Kieran Dunbar the sound design was by Graham Davidson the clips you heard were from the BBC DW News Global News Channel 4 and C-SPAN. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.